He thundered across the frontier, appearing out of nowhere to strike down injustice. His sign, a silver bullet. Before Robert Spitzer grew up to be an expert on American gun policy, he watched a lot of westerns. I was raised on cowboy movies and cowboy TV shows and gunslinging and, and all of the rest. We'd all be much better off if there wasn't a single gun left in this valley. A gun is as good or bad as a man using it. He was raised on stories of an America built by rugged men with six shooters on their hips. A terror-stricken town left him to face four killers. Even though that image was mostly made up. Gary Cooper was a great actor and High Noon, great, great movie. But, you know, was that typical of the West? Well, no. Robert has written five books about gun policy in the U.S. And he says that in the actual Wild West, gun laws were strict. They didn't want people walking around their new town with a gun strapped to their hip. So if you came to town, you'd have to check your gun at the town hall or the sheriff's office or the clerk's office or someplace. So all of those Western movies and television shows with folks getting in gunfights, that's largely fiction. <laughs> you know, I'm still drawn into those old stories, but that was not typical at all. Unfortunately, mass shootings have become all too typical. Recent tragedies like the Covenant School shooting in Tennessee, two separate shootings in Louisville, Kentucky, and the shooting at a birthday party in Dadeville, Alabama, have prompted fresh calls for gun reform, though it's unclear how much will come of them. But America's gun policy history seems to be more important to many courts than the present. Last summer, the Supreme Court struck down a New York State concealed carry law because, in the view of the court's majority, it went against the original intent of the Second Amendment. That ruling set a precedent that all gun laws should be judged against, quote, historical tradition, unquote. And in the year since that ruling was made, more than 100 state and federal gun laws have been challenged. Courts have struck down limits on gun ownership for domestic abusers, accused felons, and young adults. They've overturned bans on guns with shaved-off serial numbers and guns made with 3D printers. All were overturned based on the notion that the U.S. of the 1700s didn't have gun control. But Roberts says, actually, the opposite is true. I mean, it's difficult to think of any kind of gun law that you could think of today that didn't exist in some form 150, 200, 300 years ago. In many respects, guns and weapons were more strictly regulated in our first 300 years of history than in the last 30 years. Today on the show, America's real history with firearms and how it could change the gun laws of our present and future. I'm Mary C. Curtis, filling in for Mary Harris. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This all started with a Supreme Court case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. It was a legal challenge to New York State's pistol permit law, a law that had been challenged many times in the past and always held constitutional. It had been on the books since 1911, actually. But a new, more activist and conservative Supreme Court was clearly open to the idea of, in this case, striking down at least a part of the New York State pistol permit law. And what they were particularly interested in was what's called the proper cause provision. It isn't enough or wasn't enough in New York to just not be a felon, not be a judge mentally incompetent and other things. You had to actually say, well, here is why I want to have a permit and go through a lengthy process to get that permit. And local officials could turn you down if they just felt that you weren't a good person to have a pistol permit. So the court struck that down in the Bruin decision last summer. But they went beyond that, even though they didn't really have to. They said, in addition, that for the first time in history, the Second Amendment right to bear arms pertains to or extends to a right to carry guns outside of the home for personal protection. And they said something else. They changed the standard for judging the constitutionality of current laws by saying, are there similar laws in past history? This takes us to the 1700s and 1800s in particular that are similar enough to the current law that you can argue that those laws should be constitutional. Part of the problem is, well, similar based on what? How do you determine you know, what old law is appropriate to compare to a modern gun law or weapons law? Is it similar? Is it similar enough? Is it an analog or not? And so right now we're seeing firstly a flood of cases, over 100, that bubbled through the courts already where judges have made rulings, and they're going all over the place. Some are saying, yes, these old laws are consistent with whatever the current law, gun law is that's being challenged, or no, that it's not consistent with this historical tradition. I was going to ask you to follow up on something you talked about a little bit, which was the domino effect that this ruling has had on state gun laws. You said we've had a flood of rulings after that? Uh, yes. For example, about uh, 10 states have assault weapons bans on the books, and those are being challenged. Th that's not a surprise. They've been challenged in the past and have been upheld before the Bruin case came along. But all kinds of other laws have been struck down. For example, a Texas three-judge panel, a federal uh, court panel in February, struck down a law that prohibited people who were subject to domestic violence restraining orders from possessing guns and called that law unconstitutional. Why? Because 200 years ago, if you engaged in spousal abuse, for the most part, unless you left permanent damage to the abused spouse, you were not subject to criminal penalties. And indeed, it wasn't domestic or spousal abuse wasn't even illegal in the United States until you get to the end of the 1800s. So 
Is, is that a sufficient way to judge modern gun laws? I, I think there's a host of problems there. That's the thing when you go looking into history. Some folks were property. Uh, I'm curious what kinds of questions are typically being debated and come up in these cases, these kinds of cases. There, there's been a lot of discussion and analysis of laws that restricted concealed carrying of weapons, for example, laws that restricted the open carrying of weapons, laws that restricted the brandishing or display of weapons, laws that restricted various types of weapons that were used heavily in in fights and in duels and in crimes, such as uh, long-bladed thin knives, especially the famous Bowie knife. Now, a knife is not a gun, but a knife is an arm. Uh, It's a weapon, and it's a good example of how various kinds of weapons were essentially prohibited in order to solve a criminal problem. And you could certainly argue that that's very similar to what states are doing now in uh, restricting assault weapons, precisely because assault weapons have been used in very specific criminal categories, even though they represent a small percentage of all the guns in the country, in mass shootings, in large numbers, in attacks on police, and in uh, their use of assault weapons by uh, right-wing militant anti-government groups and uh, drug gangs. So that's why the focus, that's the criminological problem, and that's how some states have approached it. Are there any other recent rulings that really make you concerned? Well, there are a great many of them, and again, they're going in different directions. I'll mention one example. A federal judge in Texas ruled that 18, 19, and 20-year-olds had a right to obtain guns whereas Texas had a law saying you had to be 21 to get, I believe it was a a handgun. But the federal judge said, well, no, based on this originalist uh, legal history of gun laws, there's no basis for saying that if you're 18, 19, or 20, you cannot get the handgun. On the other hand, a uh, federal court in Florida ruled the other way on that very question. It was a slightly different restriction, but it was a restriction saying that 18, 19, 20-year-olds could not obtain, I believe it was assault weapons, or perhaps long guns more generally, I don't quite recall. And they ruled the other way, saying, well, the history does support that restriction. And it turns out that from the late 1700s to the early 1900s, at least 44 states had minor-based restrictions. That is, laws saying that if you were a minor, you couldn't have access to various kinds of weapons, including guns. So in fact, when you do the actual work, and I will say I was somewhat surprised at that out at that at that result, but that virtually all of the states had laws saying barring or restricting minors from getting weapons. So there is actually a legal uh, a history in weapons law and gun law, kind of supporting that idea. But here again, you have two courts coming to two different conclusions on a very similar question, and we're going to be seeing lots of this in the months and, uh, and probably years to come. So overall, what are some of the real-world ramifications of all these cases? Well, the immediate ramification is to put lots and lots of gun laws up for grabs because we're seeing an unprecedented number and variety of challenges to gun laws. Secondly, the standard itself is so vague and amorphous that judges are going off in all different directions. So you've got two pretty complicated and difficult activities going on as a consequence of the Bruin 
decision in the Bruin standard. Uh, my larger concern is that the standard they've laid out in Bruin is a dead end, ultimately non-functional and not very sensible standard for determining whether modern gun laws are constitutional or not. After the break, America's love affair with firearms is newer than people think. The argument that the Second Amendment authors were generally against gun control partly comes from the idea that guns have been a fundamental part of American society from the very start. Robert Spitzer says that's an exaggeration. There may have been fewer laws regarding military-grade weapons, but that was because hardly anyone owned guns meant to shoot people. Most guns were for hunting, and handguns were still a luxury item for the rich. Our images of frontier life have been badly distorted by popular culture. And that distortion of popular culture dates back to the time of frontier settlement by Eastern European-based settlers traveling across the West. The West wasn't settled by or with guns, primarily. The West was settled by farmers, ranchers, tradespeople, political leaders, the parts of a society that we are acquainted with today. And were there, you know, was there gun violence? Yes. Were there guns? Yeah. But it is nowhere near the, the, the popular culture image that so many people have today. How have our attitudes toward guns changed over the centuries? Well, earlier in our history, there certainly was a, a gun culture tradition. There was a hunting sporting tradition and the militia tradition where men of militia age were required early in our history to have, keep, and maintain military-grade guns should they be called up for militia service. That's why that phrase appears in the Second Amendment, uh, to keep and bear arms, because the British would disarm men for obvious reasons during the Revolution and immediately before. And that was at a time when the main military bulwark of the country was the militia, these part-time yeoman farmers. We don't do that anymore. We don't, that's not how we conduct national defense anymore. And even so, the states and the federal government had laws requiring men to have and maintain military weaponry at their own expense. However, those laws were widely ignored. They were resented by most men. Most men were not interested in doing that or expending the money or the time or the effort to do those things. And these laws, generally speaking, had no enforcement mechanism. Today, they're still hunting and sporting. That's a part of a tradition that goes back hundreds of years. But in addition, the gun has kind of been fetishized and politicized in a way that we really didn't see in our past. You're right. The gun issue has become a proxy for so many other things that it's a symbol as well as an actual gun. That is exactly right. And that's why you've even seen some members of Congress starting to wear lapel pins that are a pin of an assault rifle. And that's kind of their political statement, even as, you know, shooters commit mass shootings using assault weapons because it's a favorite weapon of mass shooters. 
We've seen this surge in mass shootings this year. I just want to quote some statistics from the Gun Violence Archive that there have been more than 100 mass shootings in the first 63 days of the year, which is more mass shootings than days. You've said in the past that when there were periods of high gun violence, and you've talked about it in detail, politicians put more regulations in place. So what changed? Why can't we do that now? Well, we could, of course. What's changed is the political landscape of the country. We are in an era of high polarization, of sophisticated, well-organized lobby groups that are able to exert a great deal of pressure on government behavior. Lobbying the government is not a new thing, to be sure. And that has resulted, I think, in the kind of trend where we've seen a kind of polarization of the states as well, where conservative states going in a deregulatory direction, liberal states going in a regulatory direction when it comes to gun laws. And this gap is is widening. And in the context of a time where the courts have been populated by a large number of very conservative judges who uh, one of the sort of litmus test standards for being promoted through the conservative judicial establishment is opposition to gun laws. That has buttressed, I, I think, these sorts of arguments uh, and the outcome that, that we are seeing in our current politics. What lessons do you think we can learn from how America has dealt with guns in the past? Well, I guess one takeaway I would emphasize is that when weapons in America collided with criminological or public safety concerns or problems, governments responded by enacting regulations. When problems arose, when they involved firearms, governments stepped in and in large numbers and in somewhat different ways, imposed new regulations to protect the public and dampen criminality. Do you think we're actually learning these lessons? Well, yes and no, I suppose. Certainly, we're learning more, ever more, about what this history, what our history really is. There are some, of course, who are not going to be persuaded by that or will, or will view it in some different way. And that's part of the polarizing moment that we are in. But I think there certainly is much more known now about our past than there was, uh, and our, our gun law past in particular, than was known 10, 20, 30 years ago. What do you think will be the result of this historical interpretation of gun laws in the states, in the courts, and in our communities? Well, the historical approach that the Supreme Court has laid out, I think, is so vague and incompletely defined and so much tied to the past that I think that standard will have to be amended in some important respects in the future. I don't know who, how, or in what manner exactly, but I think it's pretty clear already that the cascading numbers of cases that are popping up, raising all kinds of questions, are, are just not going to be satisfactorily answered until these standards are clarified. And the that includes the history standard, too. I don't know quite how to ask this, but do you think it will result in more violence, more mayhem? It's hard to say. It depends on how this all comes out. 
um, will laws ultimately be sustained or not? I mean, we do know that there is a strong correlation between more gun laws, lower gun violence and death on the one hand versus few gun laws and more gun violence. That is, there's a direct line correlation between more gun laws and less gun violence. And if those gun laws are really torn down, I would expect that there would be more gun violence. Thank you, Robert Spitzer, for being a guest on What Next? Good to be with you. Robert J. Spitzer is a professor emeritus at SUNY Cortland. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting help from Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist for Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later.